The Talking Football Podcast is brought to you in association with Luaf Press. Get 15% off all football titles with the code TALKINGFOOTBALL. You can also use the code UK15 for free UK shipping on orders over £15 and International30 for outside the UK for sales over £30. Hello and welcome to the Talking Football Podcast with me, Derek Clark. Every week we bring you a first-class interview with some of the biggest characters involved in the game. This week it was an absolute pleasure to chat to former footballer and First Minister Henry McLeish. It's another fascinating interview as Henry looks back on his brief playing career where he was once on the books of Leeds United under the legendary Don Revy and starred for his hometown club East Fife before injury cut his career short. We also talk in depth about his 2018 book Scottish Football Requiem or Renaissance where he challenges the powers that be that are running the game and questions why we're continually failing as a nation when it comes to the national team. Henry doesn't beat about the bush and was a joy to listen to, so sit back and enjoy the latest episode of the Talking Football Podcast. and welcome to another edition of the Talking Football Podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to say we're joined on the line this week by former footballer, first minister and also author of the 2018 book Scottish Football Requiem or Renaissance. It is, of course, Henry McLeish. Henry, thank you very much for, for joining us. Delighted to be here, Derek. Loads to talk about, Henry, of course. Uh, we'll talk in great detail about the book, but I wanted to touch firstly on um, your playing career, of course. Not many people would have been aware of uh, you actually played football before you entered into, into government and what have you. Um, growing up as a young boy in Methyl, was it always a dream to be a, a footballer? Well, I suppose it was because I was football crazy from a very, very early age. And I tell people in terms of my life history that I started to play football when I was two and carried on for the next um, 18 years and I stopped playing professionally when I was about 21. No, I had been, um, at seven and a half years of age, I was captain of Kennewe primary team. I could hardly speak English at that point, but my football skills were quite impressive. I then went on to high school, played for five schools, played for the East of Scotland and went through that, of course. And then at um, 14 and a half, I was playing for uh, five schoolboys against Dundee in Dundee and I scored a hat-trick. I was playing inside forward, and uh, the Leeds United scout was there. So he came up the next Sunday morning, and walking up the street, he said, uh, you know where the boy McLeish lives? And I said, I am the boy McLeish. He says, let's go and see your parents. So we went round, um, and after that, um, I signed for Leeds United when Don Revy took over, and this was in 62-63. That was really the point at which uh, launch Leeds into winning the league, into the European Championships, etc. So that was a great move. Unfortunately for me, I went down, spent a few months, couldn't really settle down. So I came back to Scotland and at that point signed for East Fife. Um, and from there, I played for Scotland's um, under-18 professional youth team in a world, mini World Cup in Yugoslavia. And stayed with East Fife for about six years and then at 21 realised I better do something with my with my life. So I then went to to university. So it was a brief period, but I was, and I always remember, Derek, that when people ask me about my great achievements in what is now a long life, I say my keepy up record. Yeah, yeah. And of course, 
most kids have no idea what keep you up means. And I said, look, my, my keep you up record is 1,469. And they're astonished. And then I say, to cap it all, I can do 400 with a tennis ball. And at that point, they're all lying on the ground, flabbergasted. What a talent this boy really is. It remains my first love. I've always had a passion. And for good measure, Derek, it's important to say that my grandfather played for East Fife between 1909 and 1913. That was Henry Baird. So in that sense, it's been in the family. I was very fortunate to play the beautiful game and still have with me some great memories. Although, as we're going to find out, the game is in a bit of a troubled state just now. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, just touched on the keepy-ups there, Henry. Uh, that, that was something I wanted to ask you about. It did tickle me when, when I was reading uh, your book. Have you, have, you, have you done any keepy-ups recently at all? Is it something that you, that you continue to do? Because it's, it's an impressive record that you've got there. Well, you know, um, the impressive record now means I have a West Highland Terrier, and she is a female, Tussie, and she's got a tremendous left foot, and we play football most of the times. Sadly, I don't play keep you up you now because essentially my war wounds from my knee and my hip are giving me some serious problems. So I can't do that. But interestingly, I was at Ibrox and I was visiting when I was doing my review of Scottish football way back about a decade ago. And I was in the dressing room speaking to some of the young players. And I said, look, what's your keep you up record? And they looked at me as if I was an alien. <laughs> they said, what do you mean? I said, keep you up, you know, keep the ball off the ground. Don't let it hit the ground. They were completely mesmerized. And of course, it deflated me because I was about to tell them about 1,469. And of course, it had very little significance for them. But it was part of growing up. It was part of the kind of messy approach to life in the sense that you have a ball, you've got to love it, you've got to treat it well, and you've got to treat it as your best friend. I think some of that is now lacking from the game. Yeah, definitely. Um, touching on the, the, the Leeds United move, Henry, of course, going down there as a 15-year-old a boy, I mean, what was that like? It must have felt like you're going to... <coughs> the other end of the earth from, from what you're used to um, going all the way down there. Of course, you never spent that long down there, but what was the whole, whole experience like for you? Well, it was a fantastic experience because this was a 15-year-old working-class kid going to Leeds. I remember staying in Roundhay Park, Roundhay Road, Leeds, uh, with a Welsh landlady. Um, uh, and in my, in my digs, I had four other players. But of course, this is the time... And when Eddie Gray signed, I signed with Eddie Gray. This is the time when Don Revy took over as manager. Bobby Collins was there. Jack Charlton was, was there. And this was a tremendous experience. I, in fact, spent half my day uh, either cleaning Bobby Collins' boots, ex-Celtic, or painting the stand. But I don't think that kind of thing goes on today. But it was a useful experience for a working-class boy being involved in practicalities. But interestingly enough, Derek, and to show, the, to show you how Leeds were going to become one of the great sides, some afternoons we were taken to a hotel, some of the best hotels in Leeds, and it was to introduce us to cutlery. Wow. As a working class boy, restaurants, cutlery. So we worked from the outside to the inside. We, were take, we never got to eat anything, but we just went there to practice. Because Don Revy was a maestro. Not only did he want good players, good teams, good football, but he wanted to make sure, in his language, the boys were well taken care of. So it was a first-class experience. It stood me in great stead, I think, for things later. Although you're not conscious of it, you're actually thinking, why they, they, they did really treat boys well. Now, I, I hope the same thing, kind of thing goes on at the present time. But nevertheless, it was a revelation. It was an experience of which I learned a lot. Yeah, you mentioned there Bobby Collins, Henry, of course, he's a, he's a legend down at, 
at Ellen Road. Did, what was it like cleaning his boots? Did, were they, uh, they any memories of him? I guess you had to make sure the boots were pretty spruced up for him. Well, this was the challenge. You know, you, you, you couldn't really just keep up to Bobby. You had to, had to admire the fact he had a tremendous reputation, a really nice, decent guy. And here was me, 15, from Methyl, sitting, doing his boots, making sure it was a good blossom. And remember, um, Derek, at that time, it was the high boots. It yeah. wasn't the kind of sand shoes we play in now. You know, these were high boots. It took a lot of work to do. I'm really just edging it out here for effect. But nevertheless, Bobby was a great character. But interestingly, Jack Charlton was there at that time. <clears throat> Jack was often quite moody, but a giant of the game. But he was playing in Leeds' third team at that time. He had not actually been elevated to the point where he was playing for England in, in the, the, uh, the, the World Cup. Yeah. Uh, when you've seen Ellen Road for the, for the first time, Henry, go down as a, a young boy, because was that must, must have took you back to see a, a ground that, like, like that. Well, certainly from the, the context of, of Fife and in Scotland. And of course, I'd had an offer from Aston Villa before um, I went to Leeds. But going to Leeds was, was a great experience. But part of the problem, Derek, was it was such a big experience that I hadn't experienced that kind of visit, that kind of trip, being away from home before. So it, it, it was a bit of a problem. But interestingly, and, and a bit immodestly, um, I think there was about nine or ten of us signed for Leeds United at that time, including Eddie Gray, um, including Jimmy Greenhoff um, and a number of other players. All of them went on to play at international level for the country, but the only one that didn't at full international level was my good self. So I live with the idea that if I'd stuck the course, been able to make the grade, then things might have been different for my political career, of course, but as well as my football career. Yeah. Are you one of those, Henry, that, that looks back at that, uh, that, that time and think that my career, my, my life might have went down a, a different path if I, uh, I just went a bit longer down there? Well, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it didn't go down a different path because I've seen a great deal more of life. But interestingly, um, when people ask me what I did between 2 and 15, I said, I just played football. You know, I didn't like school much. In fact, I hated school. On a Friday, I'd like to bunk off. Um, you know, I didn't like going. And people say, well, why? I said, because it interrupted my football. And of course, my great story there was when I was about um, 12, um, my mother invited me to go and pick potatoes because she did that every summer to get a bit of extra cash. So I picked potatoes, Derek, for one day because I couldn't think what an unbelievable, unbearable exercise it was. So I gave it up after one day. Why did I do it? I bought a Real Madrid strip for 14 shillings and 11 and a half pence at that time. And that was my proudest possession. It was the only thing, time I think I worked under the age of 15 as well. But it was all connected to football in some bizarre way. And sorry, to finish off the Real Madrid link, <clears throat> I was then privileged when my father took me um, in <clears throat> to see Real Madrid play Eintracht in 1960 at Hamden. And this was, this was, as been stated, the best game that's ever been in the whole world. It was like watching the Harlem Globetrotters. <clears throat> and I just remember you were talking about thinking back and the experiences. There was 129,000 people at Hamden, all of them there really to support Eintracht because they had beaten Glasgow Rangers 12-4 on aggregate, 6-1 in Germany, and 6-3 at Ibrox. But by the end of the game, after winning 7-3, every Scot stood and gave them the most remarkable um, uh, reception that any club has ever had. And when you think of Di Stefano and Puskas, 
and I'll stop now because you know I could go on and on but some people say to me well what do you remember most what kind of novels what kind of literature and I just say Dominguez Marquitos Passion Vidal Santa Maria Zaraga Canario del Sol Di Stefano Puskas and Hento what more does a man want <laughs> Absolutely. And it's interesting you touch on Hamden, of course, Henry, because that's where you made your, your debut for East Fife. Am I, am I correct in thinking um, against Queen's Park? Um, what was that like? I mean, I think you were only 16, weren't you, when you, you made your debut? Well, I think at that point, and I'm sure records might prove me wrong, that I was the youngest player ever to play in Scottish football. Um, but, of course, at that time, Hamden still held 120, 130, 140,000 people. When I played that day, there were more staunchens up at Hamden than there were people. But it was great because you had the experience of the dressing rooms. We played Queen's Park. We lost, I think, 2-1 or 2-0. And of course, it was so long ago that there were no substitutes. So we went on with 11 men. Our right half got carried off just at the start of the game. So we played with 10 men <clears throat> the whole game. But the, the experience was remarkable. And of course, you enjoy the game because that was your first outing in the first team. And um, I'll never forget that experience. Yeah, and, and playing for East Fife, being a, a local lad as well, Henry, I've seen you mention in the book, you, feeling like a, a local celebrity in, in Methil at the time. It must, must have been great as a young, a young boy living your dream uh, and being a footballer. Well, it was. You know, I used to get the experience of um, in the summer months when we played away games in the evenings, the, you know, the East Fife bus would come up the school drive and I would get out of school early, get on the bus and uh, move from there. So, so it, it was a fabulous experience. But I think the other point was that later on in political life, I would knock, you know, because Methyl was part of my constituency, um, and I would knock the doors. And, uh, and they would say, well, you're not the Labour candidate, but you used to play for East Fife. So I got more votes for playing for East Fife than I did for the Labour Party in certain parts of the uh, constituency. And you mentioned that you went away with Scotland as well as a youngster to Yugoslavia and the, the Youth World Cup. As a young boy as well, it must have been, it must have been great for you going, going away to a place like that, especially away back then. Well, we went to a Mini World Cup and I played in one of the games against Holland. We drew the three games and we didn't qualify, but we stayed in Pristina, uh, which is now, was the capital of, is now the capital of Kosovo. Um, you know, very troubled times recently, but at that time it was very settled under uh, President uh, Tito. Um, but what I remember is that we were coming back from I think Zagreb to Belgrade, and it was some problems with the airline. So the, what happened, we had to drop off in one city. We were escorted by military police off the plane into the hotel. They stood guard outside. And we had boiled eggs in the morning, got on the plane, escorted by the military, left, because it was a kind of curfew, and it was a kind of police state at that particular time. So that was another experience. But, but in a sense, it was interesting because I had signed for Leeds United with Eddie Gray. <clears throat> Now, I had played in the trials for the Scotland team. Uh, we played Motherwell. Uh, we, Motherwell beat us 5-2, but I had the daily record significance of uh, being the only one that had impressed, and I actually scored the goal. But Eddie Gray was penciled in the pool, but Eddie had an injury and couldn't play. So my former teammate at Leeds had opted out for good reason, and I got his place and went on with the uh, blue blazer and the Scottish badge, which I still proudly have uh, uh, in my office. Wow, incredible stuff. And you were there at East Fife, of course, a, a footballer for, for six years before. Um, was it injury that, that cut short? That, that was, how, how heartbreaking was that, Henry, to have your, your career cut short uh, because of that? 
Derek was a kind of mixture of emotions because I'd been with these five for six years. I had had really um, got some hires um, needed to go to university to carve out a life because I didn't think at that point football was going to be my life. And in some respects, I was absolutely right. So, so it was a disappointment. And, and at that time, um, the, uh, the, the conditions were such that you had to stay in the game a long time, put everything into it if you're going to make it. So I decided after the six years that I had to look to pastures new. I had to get uh, some degree, some education behind me because this had been the amazing thing, Derek, that I'd been at school, it seemed forever, yeah. and really learned absolutely nothing. And the, the, the best point about that was that when I, when I left school, at 15 to go to Leeds, I came back to school and they had to leave again. But when I left at 15, the, the rector or the head teacher wrote on my report card, thank God the boy can play football because he's absolutely useless at everything else. Now, it wasn't exactly a vote of confidence in me um, at that point, so, but I took that away and I thought, I'll prove you wrong. I didn't prove them wrong in football, but I may have proved them wrong in some other ways. <laughs> Excellent. And before we talk about the book, Henry, was there any opponent you came up against when you were playing for, for East Fife during that time that gave you such a, a hard time that you, were, you thought, oh, if I'm playing against this guy, I'm in for, for a tough afternoon? Well, in the second division, you know, every afternoon is a tough. Because yeah. at that time, I mean, we didn't, we didn't poke people's eyes out or pull people's shirts, but it was really hard, really uh, tough. And um, so therefore, when you were in the midfield as I was, then you didn't take any prisoners. And I always remember the late and great Jimmy Bonthron, who was a fantastic manager and a really good person. He said, look, son, this is one of my first games he played. He says, look, you're playing fullback today. You're marking the winger, right? So you mark him once and you won't see him again. And so what he meant was you just stand right behind them with a piece of flowery intimidation, really. Uh, and that was it. So I did that. But uh, no, you had to be tough at all times because, as I said, the game wasn't dirty in my view at that point, but it was really, really hard. And I think it was Duncan Edwards who used to play for Dunfermline. And of course, we played Dunfermline many times in uh, local derbies and whatever. And they were a very good side. And I ended up getting booked for kicking him. Um, I think out of maybe sheer frustration, excellent player. You know, you can't be always on the good side. <clears throat> but, 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 but again, the funny side was the referee was Tiny Wharton. Yeah, yeah. And Tiny was about 10 foot tall. <laughs> so here's this giant man looking down on the top of my skull saying, son, another one like that and you'll be off. Okay. And when Tiny from that great distance, about three feet, three feet above my head, spoke to me, that was enough. So <laughs> I didn't kick anyone else. Yeah. Excellent stuff. Now that leads us on, Henry, of course, to um, the book I've just read. Fantastic read, um, Scottish Football uh, Requiem or Renaissance. It was brought out in 2018. Can, can you give, give us a little idea why, why you wrote it? Well, I was very fortunate and very honoured to be asked to do a review of Scottish football nearly a decade ago now. And I was asked by the president at that time to look into the game. We did two reports. One was on the governance of the game. One was about elite talent. Now, I'd done that. A lot of the recommendations have been implemented, but I remained frustrated. In 2018, I decided, look, let's put some of these frustrations down in a very constructive way and pose a question. Do we want to see the death of Scottish football or do we want to see the rebirth? And what concerned me at that time 
and Derek and concerns me now is that up until 1998, and in that period um, with Craig Brown, we had qualified for tournaments, our international side looked good, we were well placed in the world as a country with a small population, but a very good international side. But for some reason, 1998, we just fell off a cliff. Performances in Europe at club level disappeared. Performances at international level completely disappeared. Uh, and now 20 years, 21 years on, we, 22 years on, we haven't qualified for any major tournament. Now, my, my view at that time when I wrote the book was, why is this? Why has one of the countries with the most impressive football records hosted some of the biggest international games in the world, hosted some of the greatest club tournaments and provided some of the great players of the world? Why are we in this pretty shocking state? So I thought, fine, let's take that as your base because I've always been more interested in the national side than in the club side for good reason. I believe there's two parts of the game. One is club, one is national. So that was the thinking to say, look, are we a country of small ambitions? Are we a country that only wants to succeed at club level, which we weren't doing very well at anyway? Or do we want to succeed at international level? Now, Derek, for a modest sized country like us, qualifying every two years for a major international tournament, I think is possible. But we were nowhere near it in 2018. And sadly, as we see 2020, we're no further, we're no closer towards it either. So that was the thinking, partly because of my commitment to the game, but partly because I think we were, as a country, selling ourselves short. You must be assertive, you must be aggressive, but you had to be ambitious. That's why countries end up in cups and why we don't. Yeah, definitely. In terms of, before we look at what sort of, what's went wrong, uh, and how we can go about changing it, you, you touch on in the book the, the sort of golden era of Scottish football up until really the, the, the around about the 90s, um, the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, and the early part of the, the 90s as well. Um, what were we doing right back then that we're not doing right now, do you think? Well, look, Derek, I mean, it's obvious to say that society's changed, life has changed, <clears throat> the game has changed, and there's been a huge infusion of money. So you could go on for a long time and talking about the conditions of the game that have changed <clears throat> dramatically. But when we look at the Scottish game, in the 60s and the 70s, um, Celtic and Rangers were big, big names in Europe. <clears throat> They're no longer so, because Celtic was the first British and Scottish team to win the European Cup. <clears throat> Tremendous performance. Rangers performed spectacularly well in a number of tournaments, including the European Cup Winners' Cup. <clears throat> and at that time, we were also qualifying for international ma ma matches, especially under the leadership of, uh, of Craig, uh, Craig Brown and Andy Roxborough. That was the purple patch as far as the international game is concerned. And of course, with Celtic and Rangers in the 1670s, that was another purple patch. <clears throat> but then, you know, and it's maybe just a coincidence, but of course, the Scottish Premier League was formed in 1998. <clears throat> After the era of Craig Brown and, and, and when we, in 98, where I was fortunate enough to see Scotland play Brazil in Paris, things seemed to change. So I put it down to one, a movement to the emphasis of the SPFL and the club game, a diminution in a lot of people's minds about the importance of the national side. And thirdly, it seemed that in terms of elite youth talent, we were not making the effort that we should be doing because, you know, we import lots of foreign players. That's a good thing, it enriches the game. But 
the bad thing about foreign players is they'll never play for Scotland. And if you look at the clubs now, they're packed out with foreign players, some of them good, some of them mediocre, but all of them often excluding young players coming through the system. And so I just felt at that point that the club game was to the fore, the national side was being neglected, <clears throat> elite talent was not the resource that it should be in Scotland compared <clears throat> with other countries. And fourthly, and this is hard to define, but I just thought the lack of ambition in the country from the Scottish FA to the Scottish League set up right throughout the country. How do we give up on our ambition? Because we have got a proud record as Scots watching football and playing football. And I just felt again that there's something we could do to try and turn that around. But it pivots around ambition and it pivots around the ability of people to put the national side at a higher level than the club side. That's quite controversial, but to me, they can both live together, but not as we see today, Derek, in my view, the, the club game crowding out a priority being given to the national side. Yeah, now, you touched on the, the SP, SPL being created in, in 98, Henry. We've now got the, the SPFL, of course, um, and we've got them and the SFA. You would like the SFA to have more power, would you say, on, on Scottish football in this country as opposed to the sort of membership organisation that seemed to be, to be running most of it? Indeed. I mean, membership organisations are, are very difficult, very complex institutions. <clears throat> but one of the problems of Scottish football, and this is not being disrespectful to individuals, but it's the institution. Um, we seem very far behind in running a modern institution and a modern game. <clears throat> we still have a situation whereby a president can go to the SFA and he serves his time and then another one comes in, they serve their time. <clears throat> and <clears throat> secondly, we have a board just now, which is overrun with people representing the league. The independence of the SFA has been hugely compromised by the clubs. Now the clubs have a huge important role in Scotland. That's the bread and butter for every Saturday for most Scots who love the game. But what has happened is that the governance of the game is now being preoccupied with the club football and the priority for the national game has just disappeared. And that's why I believe that this governance issue is very, very important. But I think also, you know, I chair an elite academy in Fife. Um, that, was, that was one of the ideas that I established in my review. But we're the only surviving academy. There are no other academies in Scotland that are not part of a large club. Now, that to me is ridiculous, partly because if you look at the history of the game, we've never been dependent on Rangers and Celtic for our international stars. Yeah. A lot of other clubs have contributed. But the other point is, Derek, that if you look in Scotland, from the Western Isles to Kincardineshire, you know, from, from the Shetland Isles and down to Dumfries, there's football talent everywhere, but we're not picking it up. And now we're in the position whereby the clubs have been left, apart from my academy, to deal with talent, and it's not good enough. We should have an academy in every part of Scotland, not only working with the clubs, but also working with Scottish football. You know, Alec Ferguson made a great play in his book about the loss of Scottish football um, from our schools. And to me, I came through the school system Every player that you can imagine has come through the school system, but in the last 20 years, schools football has largely disappeared. And so therefore, there's a lot of issues, a lot of things that we can do, but at the top end of the game, if the club side 
is taking over the SFA side, then that's bad news. And look, Derek, let's put it like this. The SFA can have power because it decides on any player that wears a Scottish jersey on a pitch right down to the colour of the corner flags and the details of every game, when they can play. And you can see the situation now between the Scottish government and the SPFL in terms of the pandemic. You know, the, the, the football authorities have great power, but I fear they've given far too much to the clubs. And that is excluding the SFA and the national side from gaining the, gaining the prominence they should have. Yeah. In terms of those youth elite academies, uh, Henry, um, of course, that was one of your, your recommendations. Uh, have, you, have you had any sort of explanation from the powers that be as to why it's not being carried out as, as, um, as, as you said it should be? Well, it started off in a real flurry of hope yeah. and ambition um, many years ago. Um, and then for a variety of reasons, it seemed to change format and change ambition. So instead of regional academies, um, it was basically on the clubs to get organised. And then Fife, for example, um, the four Fife clubs have come together to form an academy and very successfully. Um, but the, the issue for me is that we're not picking up all the talent that exists in Scotland. And to be honest, that a lot of young people go to Rangers and Celtic, a tiny fraction of them make it, and a lot of them are lost to the game. Now, I don't, I, I don't criticise parents or the child for you know, seeing the allure of um, uh, Parkhead or Ibrox and wanting to go there. But for the greater good of the game, we must recognise that every club, every school, every part of Scotland should be involved in shaping um, the way we go forward. And as you know, Derek, it's often said, well, we're a small country. We've never been a small country in terms of ambition. We're a small country in terms of population, but that hasn't mattered to Uruguay, Croatia, Ireland, when they got to the quarterfinals of the World Cup under uh, Jack Charlton. And some of the best countries, and if you look at Norway and Sweden and Denmark, they've qualified virtually every two or three years for international tournaments. So my simple conclusion is that we've run out of excuses in Scotland. We've stripped away the layers of excuse and we're at rock bottom now, and there aren't any excuses left. We have talent. We should have the ambition. We should have the income to make Scotland a great footballing side. And it, I think, largely depends on our advancing on a new front, then retreating, and now in a situation where, again, the clubs are taking prominence because of their financial position, and an academy, we're the only one left, so it remains to be seen whether we will be able to continue. But the main problem is we should have had academies in every part of Scotland where the football clubs should have been subservient to the national game if you want to achieve success. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, interesting, you mentioned that the, the, the small country syndrome thing. It's one of my pet hates when you hear pundits and what have you saying, oh, we don't have any world-class players anymore and we only have a, a small pool to pick from. We just ringed off numerous countries there, Henry, that, that, that consistently excel in the international stage. So it's, it's more of a, a mindset thing, isn't it? Just trying to get ourselves out, out of that, that uh, thinking that, 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 we're not, that we're not a big country, we shouldn't be competing with these sides. Well, you're absolutely right, Derek, because, look, ambition has nothing to do with the size of a country. 
I've, I've said there's a number of countries that have done particularly well. I mean, <clears throat> you know, they, they can make progress in, in the, the European Championship. They can also make progress in the World Cup. It's all about institutions that have ambition. It's also about leadership because all the nuts and bolts are there in Scotland. And, you know, for me, um, I look around the country, I can see the talent coming through. And you have to ask a simple question is this, why in 1998 did Scotland's aspirations just fall off a cliff? Now, I've put forward a lot of ideas to explain that, but rather than explaining all the time, there are easy ways that we can move forward. And that is for tomorrow, for the SFA, to exercise its right to be the dominant force in Scottish football, to be dominant in terms of who does the training of elites, and of course, who does the preparation in relation to not only the women's game, but the, the men's game. So there's a lot of simple questions that can be answered. But for me, Derek, the frustration is, I want Scotland to be a good footballing power. I don't expect us to win the World Cup or the European Championships, or Celtic or Rangers at this stage to win um, the Champions League or the Europa Cup. But I'm embarrassed. I'm fed up with people saying, times have changed, life has moved on, Scots can't do it. Because you're not only insulting the game and our young players that have been born every day, you're insulting the country. And this was supposed to be a time where there'd be a blossoming of the national spirit post-evolution and Scotland, you know, modernizing, democratizing, moving forward. And the really sad thing for me is that, yes, we've done that in so many ways, but our football's going backwards. So the message to um, Sixth Floor at Hamden is think big, think ambition, and actually believe in yourselves. Because if you don't, you don't reach out to people for them to believe in Scotland, then we're going nowhere. Yeah. You often see, of course, when we fail to qualify for these tournaments, Henry, that the manager um, usually pays with his job and they just, it seems like a revolving door. But I guess it's, it's, we need to look deeper than just, just changing the manager, don't we? It's a whole transformation we need to look for here. Well, look, again, Derek, it's, we, are, we have an institution in Glasgow that doesn't operate like any normal institution, only one similar in, in, in football. And I think that in my book I wrote, there was 26 managers, I think, from the, the mid-1950s. Um, and what happens is the average time they spent was less than 18 months. Less than 18 months. And what happens is we pick the team, we pick the pool of players, give it to the manager. The manager picks, I'm sure, doing his best. You know, there's nobody comes into a Scotland team with a blue jersey to pick a bad team. But then they're dumped. But then nothing else happens. The president of the SFA doesn't go. The board members don't go. And other people feeding into it don't go. Now, I don't want to see anybody lose their job after a defeat or a calamitous period of non-involvement. But you have to ask yourselves that we've got into this rigor of changing the managers and it changes nothing. We've lost good managers. Their problem is not themselves. It's what they've got on the pitch. It's what they've got in terms of energy being given to them. It's in terms of what importance has been given to the national side, what priority, what prestige, what investment. And that, of course, revolves around being given young people 
that can do the job. And on the young person side, Derek, again, it's a no-brainer. I don't, I'm not against clubs having um, foreign players coming in, whether it be England or from, from the continent or elsewhere. Some of them are good. Some of them, in my judgment, are truly awful. But it's the short-termism of the managers and the clubs. They want the finished product, and some of them are not the finished product. But they're mature young men, and sometimes older, they could be slotted in. Now, that automatically means exclusion. For whom? Young players. Their inability to sit on the bench and probably be called on. Their inability to sign for those clubs because they've been excluded by foreign players. And the ability for our young players to get experience at that large level. And that, to me, Derek, was one of the reasons why I wanted every SL1, every SL2, every championship team in the academies. Because we have some superb young people coming through Fife. Yeah. They don't have to go to Rangers or Celtic. Yeah. But the lure of the big clubs, the lure of greatness, the lure of finance, in a way, is destroying our internal ability to produce young people of talent. And sorry to repeat myself, but you know, young people of talent will play for Scotland. Poor or mediocre foreign players will never play for Scotland. Yeah. And that, to me, is yeah. a huge issue as we, as we look forward. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned there you'd like to see the clubs uh, all come together there. We had um, Archie McPherson on a few weeks ago and he says that clubs have never uh, looked out for each other. They just look out for themselves and that's a sort of culture we need to try to get away from if, it, if we're to try and improve the national team, I guess. You know, I admire Archie because he's, he's been in the game long. <clears throat> he's got a lot of wisdom and his recent book was, <clears throat> was really good as well. But, <clears throat> but he's right. See, you've got to look after each other's backs. See, we're not in the, the tremendous condition that we have a Real Madrid or a Barcelona um, or a Man City or a Liverpool at the top of our leagues. You know, that could give the country's glory. But what we've got to contend with is the fact that we want Rangers and Celtic and Aberdeen and maybe Hibs if they continue to do well this season. We want them to perform. They've got great records, Aberdeen under um, Alex Ferguson, and of course Hibbs did especially well. So they've got reputations, and I want to see them do well, but they've got to look after the game. And the game doesn't stop with the top five in the Premier League. It's the championship, it's the SL1, it's the SL2, it's the myriad of teams in the other leagues, some coming through. It's about schools football. It's about a whole host of teams that want to do well. And quite frankly, the big clubs and unfortunately the two big footballing authorities don't have the back. They're not covering the backs of other clubs. And that's why a club like East Fife, maybe a club like Cowden Beath, you know, they're not striving to win cups every week. They're striving to survive. And again, it comes back to another complicated question, the distribution of finance within the game. But I just, look, I just think that, look, if we're looking ahead, Derek, and we say to ourselves, we want to be a mediocre country that can maybe get some club success, maybe. But we're not really interested too much on what our national side does. If we want that, and if that's the national ambition, then we're doing that. Nothing to worry about. Everything's solved. Low ambition, low profile country. To me, that would be a disgrace and a scandal, but it would be honest in relation to where we are just now. Instead, this is not all about money. You know, talent is born. 
talent can be nurtured, talent can be identified, talent can be developed, and we can have them in Scotland or earn millions from them going abroad or indeed even to England. So um, that's the, the gem of my frustration. But really, it's, uh, it's, we, we, can, we can achieve better, but it does require a revolution in thinking because I'm sure that every person that goes to watch Rangers or Celtic, East Fife, Cowdenbeath, Dunfermline every week would also like the thrill of watching the TV and seeing Scotland in a World Cup not necessarily winning, not necessarily qualifying for the next stage, but showing that we've been having the courage and the ability to get there. And, you know, the, I, remember, I remember the game, we played Italy some years ago. And if we'd beaten Italy, we'd have qualified to World Cup. Scotland was closed that day. It was a Saturday morning. Scotland closed down. Of course, we went onto the pitch. I think within five minutes, the Italian scored a goal. <laughs> yeah. The dream was over. But the dream, the dream had captured Derek, virtually every Scot. Now, Celtic winning the European Cup, Rangers winning the European Cup, East Fife winning the European Cup, that wouldn't be the same. Because the national ambition to see Scotland on the green turfs anywhere in the world, it's emotional. You know, it gives you a feel for greatness that you want to try and strive for. And you know what, Derek? It can be achieved. Yeah. This is not fanciful. This is just good football thinking and changes in attitude. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it leads us on to um, the fiasco this summer, um, Henry, of course. Uh, unprecedented scenes, of course, with coronavirus affecting uh, everyone at, at the moment. But in terms of how the SPFL and SFA have handled things, um, what, what, what's your feelings on that and... Um, on, on, on the way forward as well? Do you get confidence in them to uh, promote the game going forward? Because I don't think many have. Well, I mean, it, it, it's easy when a person's down, Derek, to, you know, and, I, and I'm tempted at times. But look, this has been an unprecedented period. No, would, no one, I think, would criticise the game for their, for their anguish over um, no gates, playing football behind closed doors, the financial impacts they're having, the health impacts we're having. And of course, most of the clubs, all of the clubs, represent, in the main, working-class communities who have been suffering hard from this, um, especially if you throw in the, the ethnic issue. So there's been lots and lots of problems. So overall, you know, this has been difficult to cope with. I think the second point I would make, though, and it was highlighted by uh, the one Celtic player and the Aberdeen players. You know, it's a hard fact of life, and it's why and it's good and it's easy to be wise after the event, but. Players playing in Scottish Premier League football shouldn't be in pubs just now. Full stop. One player playing for Celtic shouldn't be in Spain, shouldn't be away without telling people. This is madness. And I'm delighted that the, that the authorities have charged them with bringing the game into disrepute. That's the way to deal with it. There'll be significant bans handed out. But look, there is a wider issue. See, I've always believed this, the game, the Hamden game, the Floor 6 game, the SPFL, the SFA, should be a bigger part of Scotland. It should be reaching out more to sponsors, reaching out more to government, not a kind of closed community sitting in Glasgow. And, and so therefore I would be critical because see, clubs like Stennis Muir under Ian McMenemy, they've been very, very helpful in every community, trying to help the communities that serve them. I don't know what that has been like throughout Scottish football. 
But I suppose that the third issue for me then is the finance. Look, we understand the pressures and strains on the Premier League clubs. But there's pressure and strains on my club at Bayview and on Cowdenbeath and Arbroath and on Fernland. And what we need to have there is a recognition that you can pour all the money in, but if it only goes to a few clubs, it's not helping the bulk of the game. So what I'd like to see, Derek, to answer your question specifically, that the game open up, opens up much more. You know, we're not a secret community living on floor six at Hamden. Reach out to the government, reach out to the community. And of course, for example, after the World Cup performance and getting to the World Cup, the women's game should be everywhere. But I believe that the interest in that has waned and it shouldn't have done because young girls are joining the game. That's something to be sponsored. So there's a lack of energy. There's a lack of focus. And there's also the great problem that, you know, the game is not bigger than the country. And the, so therefore the game has got to reach out and change. But what I would also say is that we cannot have a situation where our powerful clubs like Rangers and Celtic get caught in a stramash um, with, um, with the SFA or the SPFL. It doesn't look good looking in. And some of the exchanges between the SPFL and Rangers, for example, shouldn't have happened. Yeah. These are not people looking after each other's backs. This was a war out in the open. These were comments that shouldn't be made, actions that shouldn't have happened. So there's a multitude of issues affecting the game, but I believe the simple solution is for the game to remember that the country's bigger. If it was a game unadorned with gambling messages, it would be far better and attract the government into it and better sponsored. And if it was believing in young people it would want to show examples all the time, not mindless examples of being in pubs or going to different countries. They've got to actually start as role models for a lot of our young kids who are, Derek, some of them are absolutely brilliant. All they need is an opportunity. And so the game for a variety of reasons has got to change. It's got to think bigger. It's got to look wider. And you know, if it did all of that, it'd be acting in its own interest. It's too narrow just now. You know, it's too much circling of the wagons. They don't accept critical friends like me. They think, like everybody else, I'm a critical enemy. So all of that's got to change. Yeah. In terms of the, the club game, Henry, um, a lot of people we've had on, on the programme say that the summertime was the ideal opportunity to, to restructure the divisions and, and just completely transform uh, Scottish football, and they haven't done so. Is, is that sad in you that we had a, a, a right good opportunity here to, to, to change things for the better and we haven't acted on it? Well, it highlights one of the key weaknesses of, of the game just now is we're not thinking. Yeah. We're not thinking ahead. See, the pandemic has meant for a lot of organisations, a lot of businesses, a lot of companies, a lot of politicians, like myself or ex-politicians, that gives you a time to think ahead. You know, that the pause button's on. Clearly, there are financial issues that have got to be dealt with. But this should be an opportunity for us to think ahead. So my view is, Derek, <clears throat> we shouldn't rush that we're going to have a league reconstruction for next week or next month, or maybe even the next few months. But what we should have done is to say, look, let's put a group of people to work. Not a group of people coming together with vested interests, as we had done. Let's open it up. Let's get the government. Let's get other people. Let's get people involved. And let's look at a long-term plan for the game. Another review, if you wish. But the, but the review would be about taking the structure of the clubs, to me, there should be three leagues. Yeah. There could be two, but they'd be too big. 
there should be three leagues. They would be functional, they would work, and they would give more opportunities. I mean, I don't like um, East Fife, for example, playing the same club four times a year. I mean, I know the colour of their socks. I mean, the kind of hairstyles they'll have. It's not exciting. It's not good. And I think the fans want reconstruction. But again, the stumbling block is that the Premier League is disinclined to have more clubs because it cuts the pie in too many different, uh, too, too many extra ways. Now, we should put that aside and look what's good for the game. So reconstruct is one thing. But secondly, this is also a chance to look again at our elite talent and how we're dealing with it. That hasn't happened at all. And thirdly, what we should be doing is to say to some of our <clears throat> vulnerable clubs in SL1, SL2, they're doing a great job. I mean, there are people at Bayview now helping. They helped when I was playing. They must all be about 150 now compared <laughs> with my age. But it's, it's amazing. It's the social side, the community side, and the clubs, the communities have served the clubs well, and clubs are trying to serve the community. But I just wonder whether Hamden is serving either at the present time. So, so Derek, yes, the pause button's on. We need to think, and but we should involve. For example, I'm involved in the Supporters Association um, uh, of Scotland, the Scottish Football Sports Association. They're representing a massive number of fans. But currently, you get the impression that fans don't matter. Fans only matter if they come through the turnstiles or they pay for the season tickets. Any other consideration seems to have gone by the board. But, you know, Jock Steen said, you know, without fans, there is no game. And what he meant was he wanted them bawling and screaming and shouting and supporting from the terraces, as I do. Um, and so, therefore, we've got to think about the fans, the fans' involvement, the fans' the supporters' association, and get them fully behind us. They want the changes we've talked about. And they've got to help us get the changes that I'm afraid the SPFL and the SFA at this stage don't seem to be interested in. Yeah, yeah, I was going to touch on that, Henry. You mentioned the fans. It's vitally important because they are pretty much the largest stakeholders in, in the game and they seem to be shut out in what is a, a closed shop, don't they? But what you see, the, the, the corridors in, in Hamden. So getting them more involved really is a, a step forward, really. Well, a big step forward because, you know, not only should they be involved, they deserve it. I mean, the, the supporters are the lifeblood of the game. They pay a lot of the finances still, despite um, football money coming in from the broadcasters. But it's an attitude of mind, again. And, you know, I think one of the problems at Hamden is they've been so long um, protecting themselves from the outside world. It, it is the covered wagons circle. They've got to appreciate that people want to help and the fans more than most. And if you take some of the loyal fans at Rangers and Celtic have, that's incredible because they have huge support and I'm pleased about that. But some of the smaller clubs, they need the fans to be more intimately involved. And of course, they move to kind of fan um, possible involvement, fan ownership. These are developments we should look forward to because at the end of the day, um, I want to see the fans healthy and involved and not excluded. But Derek, it comes back to something we've talked about a lot in this um, uh, interview is it depends on the attitude of those in floor six. I've made the point that the SFA is now crowded out by people with people that are too involved in the club game. We cannot have that. And the, S the SFA should be at the top of the pyramid. They have the, their guardian, they are the guardians of Scottish football and they can start to dictate 
for example, that we have somebody from the Scottish Supporters Association directly involved in the board. I mean, is it so radical? Is it so ridiculous that a fan representing the millions of fans we have should sit on the board or both the boards of the SFA and the SPFL? Now, I think they're functioning as one just now, which is a pity. But see, these are, in my view, tiny step forwards that would send shockwaves through the game, through Scotland, and actually indicate, sorry, we have been listening and we are now going to involve. And if you take the relationship with government as well, which I know a lot about, the government want to help Scottish football, but they're not being encouraged. They're not being encouraged. And that's a bad thing because whether you like governments of any color or not, they are the government of the country. They speak for people and they speak for fans. And it's high time that the football authorities decided to listen to the fans because they're li listening to electors and voters. And that I think would get them closer to government, whether it's the SNP, whether it's Labour, whether it's Liberal, whether it's Greens or Conservative. It's important that the game reaches out. And if they do, other organisations will want to reach out to the game. Yeah, that leads us on then, Henry. I mean, if you had a crystal ball and you could look into it, maybe five, ten years from now, how do you see Scottish football? Do you see us falling further adrift or will we get our act together? Derek, that's a <clears throat> terrible, <clears throat> difficult question. But let me answer it by saying this. The first priority is to change the ambition and attitude at Hamden. That to me means <clears throat> to change the, the structure of the uh, committees, this change the structure of the authorities, you know, <clears throat> elect presidents, uh, elect bosses of the various committees, all of that, big involvement of fans, open up the game, democratise the game, um, not just a few for the few, but actually the many getting involved to make sure the game is representative. And the second point is we've got again to reinvest our thinking and our energy and our in finance into the elite game. We will never have great national sides or good national sides without good Scottish talent for all the reasons that we've talked about. That can happen. This doesn't need millions. It does need some of the best coaches from Europe, it does need imaginative ways of doing this, and it does need an academy structure linked to schools, linked to clubs that we can be proud of. And the third point I would like to see is that within the, the distribution of finance within the game, they take stock that a few thousand pounds going to some of the smaller clubs would do a great deal to help them. A few thousand extra going to some of the bigger clubs won't do much because some of them are quite well financed at, at, in the present time. So there's a division, distribution. But fourthly, why can't Scottish football just be like, <clears throat> and I know that there, there are difficulties with UEFA and FIFA, but why can't we be like other industries, like, like other companies? And if we spend 22 years without qualifying for the European Championships or the World Cup, it's not the managers that are at fault. It is the structure. It is the committee members. It is the board of the SFA and the SPFL. And someone's got to start taking responsibility for that. And if they do, it will be more open and the real responsibilities will be pinned on those who uh, need to have them pinned on. And so therefore, these changes are not ridiculous, but they are in terms of the mindset of the existing authorities who think, as I said, that everybody wants to undercut the game. No, I want the game 
to be what it could be. And the final point I'd make, Derek, on the answer to your question is, this is 22 years on from 1998. Will you and I be discussing this 32 years on? 42 years on? Because there is this absurd thinking that next year could be better. Now, there's no objective evidence that one year has to lead to betterment the next year. So we were saying 10 years after 98, well, you know, things will be better. 20 years after 1998, it could be 30 years. And to me, this should be the demon that spikes the football authorities to think, do I want to be remembered as overseeing 30 to 40 years where Scotland's players and their boots never trampled on a piece of foreign grass in either the World Cup or the European Championship? I mean, I sit back in amazement, but look, if we put it like that, that's where we could be. Now, not that I don't want to see you in another decade, Derek, doing another event to your five years, but it's so simple. It's so easy. Ambition, assertiveness, aggression, and remembering that we love our game in Scotland. We don't like to be second best. We want to participate and we can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Rings true, Henry. It's been an absolute pleasure um, having you on. It's been great talking about your career and your book, of course, Scottish Football um, Requiem or Renaissance. You can get it on Amazon and their partners, Luaf Press. Have you got any other um, books in the pipeline at all, Henry? Well, I'm, I'm back to trying to write one just about the Scottish Parliament. You know, one of the interesting things that 20 years of football have been difficult, 20 years of the Scotland's, Scottish Parliament since 98 have been tremendous, lots of success, lots of achievement. What I'm trying to do now is to look forward the next 20 years, acknowledging we're coming out of the EU, which is a, you know, a, an act of um, self-harm, which we shouldn't have done. We're actually involved in a pandemic and we've got the possibility that Scotland might be in or out of the Union of the United Kingdom. So they call that exciting times. If you're trying to write a book amidst all of that, it's more troubling times. But that's what I'm on just now, Derek, and looking forward to the outcome. Yeah, we wish you all the best. It's been great having you on, Henry. Thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure, Derek. Thank you for inviting me. That was episode 64 of the Talking Fitball podcast with Henry McLeish. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, remember, if you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can catch them all in pretty much every podcast platform. And you can also watch some of the interviews in video form on our Facebook page. You can find this very interview on there as well. Be sure to also check out and subscribe to the Talking Fitball website. It's just at talkingfitball.co.uk where you'll find a whole load of great content on there. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow us at Talking underscore Football. I hope you can join me again next week, but until then, keep safe. Bye for now.